So let me introduce Andrew first. Um, Andrew is uh, the editorial director of TGC Australia. Uh, and Andrew, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us who you are, what you do, how you spend your time. Uh, well, I'm the editorial director of the uh, Gospel Coalition Australia. So I, uh, I spend quite a bit of time uh, soliciting and editing and posting and sometimes probably type checking uh, articles for the Gospel Coalition. And uh, when I'm not doing that, I'm a graphic designer part of the time. And when I'm not doing that, uh, I'm uh, doing uh, teaching theology sometimes uh, around different colleges around Australia. Uh, and uh, as well as doing those things all the time, I'm married to Jenny and we have uh, uh, two kids, uh, Emma and Jack, uh, and we go to Holy Trinity Doncaster Church. It's a great church. It's a very good church. It is a very good church and an aptly named church as well, given uh, everything uh, we're talking about tonight. Andrew, you actually did your um, studies, your PhD at Ridley on the Trinity. What exactly was your topic that you devoted however many years to uh, researching? <laughs> yeah, I think it was eight or nine. Uh, it was The topic was called The Will of Him Who Sent Me, an Exploration of Intratrinitarian Willing. So the question, the question was, and somebody's asked the question in the... the um, uh, the questions I saw, uh, how does what we see in the life of Jesus on earth relate to the relationship between God the Father and God the Son in eternity, apart from the incarnation? Wonderful. Uh, we're going to think more about that in a moment, but before we go any further, why don't I pray for our time tonight? Uh, gracious God, we thank you so much uh, that we can gather online tonight and think about the deep things of God, uh, who you are, uh, what it means to follow you, who you are in yourself. Uh, and how you've revealed yourself to us. Thank you so much for Andrew. And we pray that tonight as we have a discussion about the Trinity, uh, that you might not just enlarge our minds and our knowledge of you, but deepen our affections for you uh, and equip us to live in light of who you are. We pray these things uh, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. So Andrew, most people, um, when they start thinking about the Bible, normally people have a favorite book, uh, maybe a favorite topic, uh, and they think, oh, I want to spend some more time thinking about this particular issue. The Trinity doesn't always, you know, it's not the first thing to come to mind. Um, how did you set out on that journey and how did it first come to your mind to say, actually, the Trinity is something I'd love to find out more about? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I guess it started in, uh, when I was in second year uni at a, in a Bible study. Uh, we were doing uh, some Bible studies on the farewell discourse, you know, kind of John 13 through to 17, and I think it might have been John 15, but it was those, those passages where you get uh, Jesus talking about, you know, his uh, honouring the Father and obeying the Father and the Father, you know, giving him everything and stuff. And it was a, a great puzzle to me because I'd always understood, you know, Jesus and God, are, uh, God the Father are, are one and equal. So how does all this order stuff work? How does this, the Father giving him stuff or sharing stuff with him and the son obeying. How does that, what's the meaning of that? Uh, and that kind of uh, got me started uh, thinking. The, the people in the, who are leading the Bible study were a bit mystified by it and said, why don't you go away and do a Bible study for next week on it? So I did that. I uh, read some J.I. Packer. I think I, I was reading, I had just read Knowing God a few years before that. So I looked that up and he had some really helpful things to say about the relationship between the Father and the Son, there being this kind of order in the Trinity as well as equality. Uh, and the more I thought about that, the, the more kind of profound it seemed because once I started reading the Bible, I found that order everywhere in the New Testament. 
And not only that, it also uh, started, you know, I started seeing that the, the order also came with purpose uh, and elective plans that came from the father for the son uh, and, and uh, structured the relationships between the, the, um, the persons of the Trinity. So that kind of got me more and more excited. And uh, when I was at college studying at Ridley, it, it was in the 90s where this issue began to be, be quite controversial, the idea of there being um, a kind of a, a relationship of obedience or something between the father and the son and how that related to, to uh, Jesus' earthly life. So um, I had to kind of defend what I, was, uh, I had thought up to this point, and that drove me deeper. And the, the deeper I went, the, the more I thought I could see, the more connections I could see between the doctrine of the Trinity in, in, as it was conceived like that uh, and different themes in the Bible, different things people were saying through history, uh, and it kind of exploded. So, yeah. Yeah. That, that's amazing because I think as you're explaining that, I've had this similar sort of experience over the last six weeks where week by week, sermon by sermon, you're realising, my gosh, this just relates to everything. Yeah. Uh, and everything seems to come back to this in many ways. And the inner life of God gives the theological and explanatory power to so much of what we talk about in parts that we just wouldn't have thought would be naturally connected, but mm. kind of coheres everything. Yeah. Um, that's so that's how you started out that was a number of years ago not not that long ago i'm sure but um if that's kind of what gripped you at the beginning you spent i don't know how many years thinking about the trinity what what is what truth or reality about the trinity continues to grip you or have you been i guess amazed by more recently or is it one of those doctrines that oh you know i dealt with that 20 years ago now i don't need to think about it anymore yeah no no it's it's continually um teaching me new things, the, the doctrine of the Trinity. But, I mean, the, the big thing that uh, gripped me then and still grips me is the idea that the, that the world and everything in it is a product of love between persons. Uh, so that's a huge thing. Uh, the idea that well, when we ask what is the most fundamental reality uh, in time or outside time, it's relationship of love between a father and a son. Uh, through the Holy Spirit, that's that's an amazing thing, and has all this kind of explanatory power for understanding the universe and understanding life, and answering our intuitions about those things, uh, and helps us understand our salvation and the themes of the Bible in a deep way. So every time you relate these things to the Trinity, I think you are taken to a deep level because. You, you then see a, a truth of the Bible or a theme of the Bible uh, in light of the most profound reality, which is theological reality, God himself, uh, the, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So uh, if you want to increase your sense of God's glory and goodness, that's a good way to do, good way to go. That's, that's, that's amazing. Because when you think about I'm reading a book right now by Don Carson, The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. Mm. Uh, and you talk about the love of God and it sounds so simple and yet you stop to think about it and then you peer into the inner life of God and it's so much more. Yeah. yeah. So I want to ask, I mean, we could, we'll get to in a moment understanding how the Trinity works as such, if that's even the right term for it. <laughs> but why does the Trinity even matter? Um, why is it important for Christians to even get this right? I mean, it's a bit embarrassing on one level because we often hear things like, well, the Trinity is the crown jewel of Christian theology. It's the most important thing. According to the Apostles' Creed, it's the boundary marker. 
of Orthodox Christian faith. And yet it may very well be one of the least understood doctrines that we're kind of apologetic for. Mm. So why does it matter so much? Uh, well, one, one really important thing is that uh, uh, God's big plan is to bring everything under the head of his son. Uh, creation is made through Jesus and for Jesus, according to Colossians 1, uh, Ephesians 1. It's God's great plan uh, before the creation of the world was to bring everything under Christ's head and include us in him. Uh, and in John 5, we hear that God's uh, plan was to, um, um, uh, he judges through the son and gives life through the son so that everybody will honour the son even as they honour the father who sent him. So it's really important that we know to treat Jesus with the same honour that we treat the father. So that means we have to be functionally Trinitarian. Whether we, whether we have a kind of clear theological understanding of it or not, we have to treat Jesus as God. Uh, yeah, so that's a really big one. You can't be an anonymous Christian in a sense. You can't be saved without knowing Jesus because Jesus is the kind of co- at the core of our salvation. And that's, that's the heart thing, isn't it? That, that's the mm-hmm. core of it. Have, when it comes to, in one sense, the, and not to suggest that that's impractical, but when it comes to some of the practical differences about how we live day to day, what difference does knowing the Trinity make to a lot of our everyday living? Uh, we know from the doctrine of the Trinity that uh, God is, is loving in his very nature and that we know that Jesus is his true son. So everything that we do in the light of that participates uh, in that love. So we can have great confidence that our our relationship with God, our service of God, uh, shares in uh, the Father's eternal relationship with the Son as it's expressed in the in the humanity and incarnation of Jesus. So that's a that's a powerful um, uh, driving force, I think, for Christians in in our in our uh, all, all aspects of our, um, our Christian walk. So bringing the Holy Spirit into it, we, uh, Paul in Romans 5 talks about how you know, suffering produces perseverance and character hope, and hope doesn't disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So the doctrine of the Trinity means there that we are, again, sharing in the life of God when the Holy Spirit comes into our hearts and stirs us up to, to know God's love and experience God's love and love God in return. The same thing happens or a similar thing happens in Romans 8 or Galatians 4 where we hear about the Holy Spirit uh, coming into our hearts so that we cry out, Abba, Father. Our relationship with God as we experience it and as we, as we turn to God in prayer and call God Father uh, is mediated by the Holy Spirit, mediating Christ's relationship uh, to his Father, to us. So everything we, all the, the kind of joy and good stuff in the Christian life uh, is intimately connected to the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. That's, that's amazing because it's like, it's almost um, slightly reductionistic to just kind of pick one thing and just go, oh, look, here's one connection, but actually knowing the Trinity shapes everything mm. uh, and, and motivation and joy and love. We're, we're talking about this in such a big, grand, lofty terms. But I guess one of the questions that always comes through is, Andrew, when I read um, the New Testament, when I read what Jesus says 
maybe we might get close in John's gospel, but I can't find the word Trinity anywhere. It's not presented in the Bible in the same sort of clear systematic categories that we might be talking about it. If Jesus doesn't present the Trinity in that way, are we kind of squeezing too much church on the lemon? Are we over-egging it? Um, are we reading into this? I don't think we are over-egging it. Um, and I think the New Testament does uh, present the Trinity in other terms. So when, uh, when Hebrews 1, we read about God has spoken to us in these last days through his son, through whom he created the world, who's the image of the you know, uh, exact representation of the father and the radiance of his, his uh, glory and stuff. Uh, that is the doctrine of the Trinity. The idea, the doctrine of the Trinity is that Jesus is a true son, that he, like all children, like all uh, sons and daughters, shares in the nature of his father, uh, but even more so because he's, a, he's perfectly like his father, unlike it is with humans, and he's eternally like that. Uh, he's exact, the exact representation of God, so he's just like the father. Uh, down to having sustaining the universe by his powerful word. I mean, in John, in John 1, we hear that Jesus is God's word, like the, the one through whom God creates. In Hebrews 1, we also hear that Jesus himself has a powerful word. He's not just an uh, instrument of the Father. He is exactly like the Father. Uh, and he's dynamically connected to the Father. He is the radiance of God's glory. Those are, those are the ingredients of the Trinity, the idea of this natural connection, uh, natural fromness, perfect likeness, um, dynamic uh, unity. That's the Trinity. That's what yeah. The, yeah, the Orthodox Church Fathers meant by the doctrine of the Trinity. There's something almost inescapable about it when we see how the New Testament presents who Jesus is and describes his relationship as one of sameness but also distinction from the Father as well. Um, When we describe the Trinity as God being one in essence and three in person, sometimes that word person can kind of help but also hinder. It can kind of get in the way. But when we talk about, okay, there's three persons, God exists as three persons in the Trinity with the Father loving the Son, we kind of imagine that there's literally one dude who's a father, another guy who's a son, and maybe the Spirit's another guy who runs between them. Is, what do we mean when we're using that language of person? Yes. Well, what we mean when we use the language of person is generally uh, distinct centres of consciousness and will. So a person for us is, is an entity that has free will and consciousness and can relate to other persons. That is not entirely incorrect. Like that's, that's, that's partly right. Uh, but it's, it isn't quite the centre of the meaning of when the doctrine of the Trinity was being kind of thrashed out in the fourth century, for example. Uh, what the church fathers understood uh, by person or hypostasis, for example, which is the Greek word they used uh, for that, for person, they meant uh, a, a particular instance or expression of a universal reality. That sounds really philosophical and bizarre, but let me give you an example. Uh, there is gold, uh, but goldness, the essence of goldness, doesn't exist except in particular gold items. There is humanity, but there are only instances of humanity in concrete human beings. Uh, but all humans share that one nature. 
That's why none of us likes to drink sulfuric acid and all of us like to breathe air, for example. We all share the one nature. Uh, uh, of course, humans are a bit different as well. I mean, mm. somebody, some people don't like chocolate ice cream and some people are allergic to peanut butter, all that, you know. Um, but if we were perfectly alike, those things would be the same too. Well, the church father said that's what it is for the father and the son to be one nature or one being uh, and different persons, distinct persons. They share the one nature perfectly alike. They are equally God, uh, but they are individual expressions or instances of that one nature. Uh, and yes, that takes us back to our initial uh, reaction, but kind of theory about what persons are. Uh, yeah, they are individuals who in them, each in themselves has the same, shares the same will and consciousness um, or, or appetites or likes and loves and character. Uh, so they're distinct persons, distinct instances of the one being or nature. Is, is part of our difficulty that when we think of person, we think about persons whose wills are different at odds with one another, which is not the case within God? Yes, there's two dangers, really. And that is one. We think of them as competing uh, or kind of rival uh, persons, just like we are as humans. Um, we want things that are at odds because we are limited and imperfect and sinful. Uh, but with God the Father and God the Son, uh, they are distinct persons, each with their own wants and likes. They are they're capable of loving each other, but they are also perfectly one and perfectly like each other. So there's no danger of uh, the father wanting one thing and the son wanting another. Uh, that which the father chooses, uh, and there is an element of choice. It's not all natural. I mean, there's a choice about whether to create a world and who to save and what to do about the weather. Uh, what That which the, the father chooses, the son delights to also choose. He will naturally think that the father's ideas are all good, uh, but he also, as a son, delights to... Uh, enact and participate in all that the father does. Uh, yeah, so there is a danger in um, separating them too much. There's also a danger of uh, thinking about their unity to such a, an extent that we forget that they are capable of loving each other and have a relationship with each other and want things for each other as a father and a son, because that's also clearly true. Uh, yeah, so you can kind of pick your poison there some some yeah via one way some with the other the other way in the 20th century uh there was a kind of big move to overemphasize the the distinction now in the 21st century there's sure as night follows day an overreaction and the danger is to overemphasize the unity so the the, the uh, when people and you might you can test this yourself when people think god is one being and three persons what many, many people think is one being, oh, like a human being, uh, a human person. In other words, what we're really thinking is God is one person and three persons because well, a human being is a person, you see. That's not what the, the doctrine of the Trinity is and it's not what being means in, in uh, orthodox history. So what would, if someone were to ask you, what then would the difference be between 
God existing as one being in three persons versus having three beings as such, but with one inseparable will, unified will that never disagrees. Yeah, the, the, the problem with the first option, thinking of God as one super person, uh, is that if you think that is the true vision of God, the persons become kind of um, mirages or surface phenomena, if you like. They're not really real. Uh, and if you do think like that, you're not going to be able to work out how the father is involved in anything. So the beauty of the Bible and uh, the Council of Nicaea, where, you know, the, where the great, the great creed of the Trinity comes from in the fourth century, the beauty of the way the Trinity is described there is that it begins with the father, not with the kind of single person of the Trinity. Uh, it begins with the father and therefore it follows the, uh, the structure of the Bible where it's the father who sends the son to save us. The father does actually does something. If there's a if there's a super person, God, you know, the triune person behind the three persons, who's really responsible for all this stuff, then the father doesn't actually do anything. It's the son who comes down to save us on as a as a man. The Holy Spirit applies it. The father doesn't do anything. All the decisions have been made at a higher level, if you like. At the, at the, the, by the person who stands behind them or is, or is them all three together. Does that make sense? In, in which case it becomes hard for us to even say we can know God? Yes, yeah. Hmm. One question about the, about the Holy Spirit and then we'll throw it over to the questions that people have asked. Um, often when we talk about the Trinity, within the Trinity there being the Father loving the Son and the Son loving the Father, there is... When it comes to speaking of the Trinity, it's it's somewhat different, isn't it? Um, we're in your book, but not just your book, actually, throughout church history, we talk about the Spirit being the bond of the Godhead, even described as the love between the Father and the Son. It feels a little impersonal. Or if we're talking about love within the Trinity, is is the is the Spirit just the third wheel of the Trinity? Like, how do we understand His role here? Yeah, I think if you. I think the, the Bible does a kind of uh, recognize that there's a distinction in the kind of person he is. And if you think about the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit in exactly the same way, if you say they're persons in exactly the same way, then you will have to, you'll assume that, yeah, he is the, he's the third wheel, he's the kind of poor relation because he, there's lots of, you know, uh, greetings from Paul where he says greetings from the Father and the Son, forgets the Holy Spirit. Um, we kind of try and make up for it in the creed by saying the, the spirit along with the father and son is worshipped and glorified. But the New, New Testament actually doesn't do that very much. Uh, the spirit is presented as a person in the New Testament. He, he gives commands to the church, you know, to set apart, apart Paul and Barnabas. He, he can be lied to by Ananias and Sapphira. He can be grieved. Uh, so he's a person. Uh, but very often his personhood is revealed uh, in the way he connects other persons. So he's, he's a little bit mysterious like that. He's a, a person who mediates relationships. So here's a, a classic example, of course, is we think about how Jesus is conceived by the Holy Spirit. Uh, uh, in Luke 1, Mary will be overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. But it's not the Holy Spirit who is Jesus' father. 
it's the God, the Father, who is the Father of Jesus. So the Holy Spirit is mediating uh, God, the Father's relationship with Jesus. That's true, of course, in, at his baptism. We, in that moment when he comes up out of the water, there is the Father, voice from heaven, the Holy Spirit coming down as the kind of link between uh, Father and Son. Uh, Acts 10, 38, uh, Peter says to Cornelius and his, his uh, people uh, that, that uh, God was with Jesus and um, anointed him with the Holy Spirit. The Father is, or God the Father is working in the life of Jesus through the Holy Spirit. That's a pattern we see again and again. And it's also the pattern we see for us too. The Holy Spirit is the means by which uh, God dwells in the temple of his church. Um, Romans 8, 10, uh, 9 to, to 11, we see the Holy Spirit um, described in terms of the, of the spirit of, of him who raised Jesus from the dead. Um, and then in, in Romans 8, 10, the Holy Spirit is just Jesus living in us, Christ living in us. Uh, so the Holy Spirit is, is mediating the presence of Christ in our lives there. I think we have, see the same thing in 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18 too, uh, with this kind of blurring between who is the Lord, who is the Spirit. It seems like Jesus is the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit mediates Jesus. He mediates the Father to the Son. He mediates Father and Son to us. Uh, he's the, he's the go-between God in one sense. So he's the bond of love, as Augustine and the medieval um, theologians would say. Uh, he's he's the, the person who brings fellowship, as Paul says at the end of 2 Corinthians. So, yeah, uh, those kind of um, historical descriptions of, of the Holy Spirit as a, as a bond, as a unifying person are helpful, I think, and do characterise his, his way of being. Why don't we go to the um, questions that are there? We've got um, quite a few questions that have been asked, and the first one uh, is a great one uh, with 10 votes behind it. Andrew, how do you explain the Trinity to a non-Christian during evangelism? Yeah, sure. Um, it probably depends on who you're talking to and there are different ways of going. So a really, um, a really kind of good and warm way to do it, I guess, is to do what Glenn Scrivener does in uh, his gospel, animated gospel tract, uh, 3 two. Three, two, one. Um, three, yeah. two, one. Which I recommend if you want to have a look at look it up later on. Uh, yeah, Glenn Scrivener's three, two, one tract. Um, he introduces. He begins with the Trinity, talking about uh, how love is uh, eternal and God is love, and uh, there is a relationship in God's own life, uh, which is a wonderful uh, truth and a, a great apologetic point to be making. Because if you're not a Christian, then you don't have a really good origin for the idea of love. If you're a simple monotheist and you think uh, God existed before the creation of the world in splendid isolation for all eternity, uh, so if you're a Muslim, for example, uh, it will be hard to work out where love comes from. Uh, if you're a pantheist, uh, if you believe that everything is one, if distinctions between persons are an illusion or something to be transcended, then love is an illusion, actually. It's part of suffering, part of uh, the, the illusion of the world, which you really need to, be, need to transcend at some point. Uh, if you're an atheist, you believe that, that love uh, comes from 
herd instinct or sex drive, you know, things to make us breed and look after our young in a, in a helpful way. Uh, but Christianity says, uh, no, love is actually feels important and fundamentally important because it is. It comes, it comes from eternity. It's the most eternal and real thing that we experience uh, because it, it comes from the, the most eternal and real place. So that's a good way to begin. Uh, there, is, uh, there are three persons um, who love each other. Uh, there is a father and a son who, who um, have always been sharing and uh, knowing each other and you know, caring for each other and wanting to uh, love each other. Another way to begin, I guess, is uh, through talking about the Old Testament or talking about the structure of the way God runs his world. God runs his world through agents, through representatives. Uh, there are humans who are in God's image, which means, you know, that we rule the world on God's behalf and we're supposed to do a good job, but we don't. Uh, there are also angels who God speaks through sometimes or acts through sometimes. Uh, in the Old Testament, there are kings who God rules uh, his people through and prophets he speaks through. Uh, all these are little signs of, again, this, uh, this eternal relationship of the, it is between God the Father and God the Son. And God the Son is the one whom, through whom God has always been expressing himself and working through in every way and who shares not just in a few little things that God does, but is exactly like God in every way um, and has been like that for all eternity. So those are a couple of ways. It's an amazing, both those ways are a really helpful way to go in evangelism and apologetics, I think, because people go into the Trinity with such kind of abstract philosophical questions, but the issue of love and relationship resonates so intuitively and deeply mm. with everyone uh, that it also kind of forces your conversation partner to ask themselves questions about how they reckon with, explain, uh, and can own a sense of love and relationship in their own life without that same grounding. Yes. Um, yeah. Andrew, as you, we're talking about the Old Testament, it comes to that second question. Um, were the Old Testament Jews aware that there was more than one person within the Godhead? Yeah, that's a really excellent question. Um, and the answer is complicated, I think. Um, I mean, the short answer is no. Uh, but the complication is that there are lots of blurrings of the category. So we have, for example, the angel of the Lord who keeps showing up in, the, in the, um, the first five books of the Bible and on. Uh, and when the, the angel of the Lord shows up, say, in the burning bush or at the, um, when uh, Samson's parents uh, hear about Samson's uh, coming birth, it's, it's the angel of the Lord. It's an angel. But at the same time, the, the language keeps switching and suddenly it's God who's speaking. Uh, there's another, another example, of course, is the, um, the commander of the Lord's army who appears to Joshua. He, um, when, he, when he shows up, he tells Joshua he has to take off his sandals because this is holy ground, which is the same thing that has to, Moses has to do with the burning bush kind of thing. So it's, this is more than an angel. This is somebody who represents God at a very high level, um, who is God, actually, somehow. Um, uh, there are also kind of personifications again and again of 
God's um, word and wisdom, the word of the Lord came to a prophet, for example. Uh, in Proverbs 1 to 8, we have the wisdom of God uh, personified as kind of co-creator, uh, working, delighting in God's creation, uh, coming, afore, coming forth to order creation according to God's plans. Uh, uh, the word of God um, in uh, Jewish kind of intertestamental time uh, was became more and more kind of personified to the extent that in some of the verbal translations of Hebrew into uh, whatever language people were speaking, these are the Targums, which would then be written down, they would avoid saying the holy name of God. Uh, when that's, of course, Jews still avoid saying Yahweh or Jehovah or whatever. Um, they now would now say the name. But very often in those days, they would say, uh, in the beginning, the word created the heavens and the earth, the word of God. And the word of God was walking in the, the garden. Um, so that, <laughs> that might sound familiar to you. <laughs> John 1 has precedent uh, in the terminology of um, popular Judaism or kind of, of synagogue Judaism as they were translating the, the Bible on the fly. So if I'm opening my Old Testament and seeing the word Lord or Yahweh, am I to read God the Trinity, God the Father, or generic God? Yeah, that's a, that's a really excellent question. There are kind of different ways of answering it. So Jesus says in John 8, my father of whom you say, this is John 8, yeah, John 8, uh, my father of whom you say he is our God. So he's saying there, God of the Old Testament, God, you're, the one you're thinking of, is my father. Um, but, of course, he also says, uh, before Abraham was, I am. So that is a clear reference to Yahweh, or I am. Uh, so he is included in the father's identity. But, again, this is something that the Jews already had with this idea that there was God uh, who went together with his glory, or his glory is another one they would kind of uh, personify, who, with his glory and his word um, is one God. Uh, so, yes, God the Father, the, God, the Lord of the Old Testament, uh, is God the Father, but is God the Father with his word and glory and, in New Testament terms, his son uh, and spirit, of course, yes, spirit too in the Old Testament. Um, so, yeah, I, I, just getting back to your question, what were the Jews thinking? Uh, what I think you find is that God had providentially uh, arranged things so that by the time we get to the New Testament, all these ideas are kind of cooking and, and simmering and bumping into each other. Uh, so when Jesus comes along, he, he kind of uh, fulfills the categories nicely. So you would have agents of God, the angel of the Lord, angels, kings, humans, commander of the Lord's army and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then you'd have aspects of God that would be kind of personified. Uh, wisdom, glory, uh, the word of God. Uh, I guess we can, yeah, include the spirit there, They're obviously a bit complicated. Um, and the logos. The logos would be, was um, became very important after Judaism bumped into Greek philosophy after the kind of Greek occupation of um, 
of uh, Israel. Uh, the Logos, uh, many Jews saw as um, another, a kind of more philosophical way of thinking about the word of God. Uh, because Greek philosophy had the idea of God having uh, a structuring principle um, uh, that um, there are, there's a pattern that comes from God that orders creation, um, that, that uh, defines its origins and its destiny. Uh, and when Judaism bumped into that idea, it, saw, it, it kind of related that to wisdom and the word of God. And it very neatly prepared the way for Jesus, who is all of those things. He's the purpose and kind of structuring reality for creation. He's also the, the living agent of God. Uh, he's the one in whom God's, the treasures of God's wisdom um, are hidden, is in kind of Paul's language. And so if you read somebody like uh, Philo of Alexandria, who is a Jew living about the same time as Jesus, some of the things he writes about the Logos, though he doesn't, he's never heard of Jesus, or no sign that he knew about Jesus, um, sound just like Colossians 1. <laughs> uh, so the Jews are grasping towards a reality at this point that Jesus just happens to fulfill. There is this sense, isn't there, when you read your Old Testament, that there is, in one sense, a layered reading of it. You can read it, you, you first seek to read the Old Testament as the original readers would have read it, knowing that there still seems to be some loose ends there, some threads that aren't quite tied up so neatly yet. And then when you get to the New Testament, you see how it's fulfilled in Christ, which then almost allows you to loop back uh, and see something on a bigger level that even the first readers might not have seen, understanding how God works through all the scripture at different times. Yes, that's that's a really important point. And, you know, we've, we've talked about how understanding the doctrine of the Trinity will take you deeper. Uh, that happens again and again with this, with, that, with this kind of thing. So here's the classic example. Uh, humans are made in the image of God. Uh, we know we can work out kind of ideas for what that means if we look at Genesis 1 and the context uh, and some of the implications when we get to Genesis 9 and so on. But when we get to the New Testament, we find out that there is an eternal image of God and he just happens to be the one who becomes a human uh, and perfects humanity. So a really important implication of understanding the doctrine of the Trinity is that you understand what it means to be human. It actually means the second person of the Trinity incarnate. That's the truest meaning of, of, the, of human being. So you and I aren't true humans, except insofar as we are connected to Jesus, who makes us true humans. And when you think about our struggles with sin, for example, you might hear people say, well, I'm only human, which <laughs> is actually a very ironic thing to say, knowing that the second person of the Trinity comes as one of us and shows us what true humanity really is. Yeah, that's right. Very often we... Um, I mean, we, uh, idolatry, of course, is a terrible, and self-worship is a terrible te te uh, kind of trap for humans. But there's also a, a danger of thinking of ourselves in two kind of uh, low terms. Uh, we have, um, yeah, we have great dignity and our, our actions really matter, which is why sin really matters. Uh, and we are offered a great salvation because we are part of a greater, a much greater uh, story, mm. a story that involves God, the Father and the Son. So sin, so humility isn't thinking less of ourselves, nor is it just thinking of ourselves less, but it's thinking more of Christ. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. 
Andrew, um, one of the big questions that's come through and that you were mentioned, you mentioned early on was, does the son eternally submit to the father or does he just submit while he's here on earth? And that sounds like something you've been thinking a lot about uh, over the years. Yeah, yeah. So a short answer, of course, is that he learned obedience by what he suffered, according to Hebrews, Hebrews 5. Um, so obedience in that sense belongs only to his suffer, his life, his earthly life of suffering. However, the Bible also says that God the Father sent him into the world. Uh, the Bible says again and again that it's God the Father's plan uh, for creation that, that uh, runs, the, that orders creation. Um, we hear that it's the Father who gets to set the day of Jesus' return, uh, according to Acts 1, 7 and other places. Uh, so what we see is that there is always a structure in the relationship between the father and the son. It's always the father first working through the son, um, holy being ex expressed wholly in the son. Uh, so when Jesus comes as a man that has a particular form uh, and that form looks like ignorance because he's a human and suffering uh, because he's a human and he's bearing our sin and sharing in our, our sufferings. Uh, and it involves faith because he's not outside time knowing everything all at once. Uh, it involves learning and, and experiencing something new, the, the suffering of having to trust God in difficult circumstances. But at the same time, that, that is an expression of an eternal reality. The eternal reality of that the father that the son is always delighting in doing what the father wants and he's always choosing what the father wants he's always naturally drawn to what the father wants uh, so the son when he becomes a human does again it is in a new way and in a new context uh, what he's always doing he he is showing his sonship in a new way in a new context so is it right to say then that, because it's interesting, I mean, you know, that I think counting three, it was about three years ago that this thing kind of just had a minor sort of B-grade explosion on the internet. It struck me that there were kind of two tendencies. There were one group of people who were um, effectively wanting to obliterate any distinction within the Trinity at all, saying that there's no structure um, or ordering in eternity and it's only um, in, in Jesus' incarnation. And then there's another side which would veer towards the subordination of the son in such a way that it would take away from his deity. Is there a way to kind of say that actually, no, there is structure within God, the Godhead in a way that doesn't take away from the equal one being one essence with the father of the son? Yeah. Yeah. I think there is. And I think the, the key to it is to remember the orthodox uh, element of fromness. So again and again, we think, Trinity means one and three, or in terms of father and son, they are distinct and alike, but also one. That's true, but we've, we've only said two out of the three important things. The third thing we have to say, and it's always emphasised in every metaphor and symbol of the Bible, is that the, the son is eternally from the father. So think again, word, a word comes from a speaker. Uh, image, an image comes from an archetype, uh, radiance, uh, stamp, uh, all, uh, all these 
words or every time we have uh, uh, the, the New Testament describes the relationship between the Father and the Son, it, it includes this idea of fromness. And so if we, are, if we kind of remember that, and, and remember that's, that's really what Orthodox Trinitarianism is too, it's not just in the Bible, it's what the church fathers said is the Orthodox version of the Trinity, but we sometimes forget it. If we remember it, then these things become, um, it becomes easy to see how that, that works. The- Which kind of blows our minds because when we think about something being from another, we think about movement, transience, time and yet the son is eternally from the father that he has always been from as such which kind of bends our brains a little bit to think about yeah yeah um so yeah and and it does actually make us think of a more dynamic image doesn't it so Hmm. the church fathers uh would use the idea of uh, like a spring, a fountain, and the spring that flows from it. You can't have the fountain unless the, the spring is flowing from it. Yeah, you can't have the sun unless there's the radiance coming from it. And by the way, I don't know if have any of you seen that uh, uh, two leprechauns kind of talking about the uh, the Trinity. That yes, animation. we love it, old Patrick. Uh, yes. And partialism is from episode two of Fault From. That's right. <laughs> That's uh, stab you in the face, Patrick. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, it's it's pretty good and pretty funny, except where they um, they say that uh, the idea that the that the son is like the radiance uh, of the father is Arianism. That's a terrible misunderstanding of church tradition. And people like Athanasius and the Cappadocian fathers and all the heroes that that fought against Arianism all use that image without being Arians at all. Uh, it's a very helpful image, <laughs> and is, it comes from Hebrews one. Uh, where Jesus is the radiance of God, the, the, uh, the Father's glory. And you can find more of that image in In Light of the Sun, uh, <laughs> seeing right. everything through the Father's love of the Son, great book uh, <laughs> written by Andrew Moody. So you get a, get a hold of that. Uh, one question, as I said, uh, in this series throughout the Trinity, it's consistently come up, the Trinity is all about love. And it's out of that intertrinitarian love that spills out uh, and is then extended to us. And, and maybe even extension isn't a right word. There's a sense of inclusion, enfolding that happens there. How then do we understand for God so loved the world? So can we then say God loves, where, where does that leave our non-Christian friends? Are they just not loved at all? Or is there some distinction there? Yeah, there's a distinction, um, but there's also a wonderful inclusion. So if you want to, here's, here's an analogy, uh, which isn't too far from some of the analogies that Jesus uses. That is that as human beings, um, we, are, we find ourselves at a party thrown by God the Father for his son. Now, the invitation that we are given at this party is to become part of the family, to stay in the house. Uh, Now, if we accept it, then we are adopted into the family. We become Jesus's brothers and sisters. If we refuse it, then, well, we get to stay at the party for a while. That's all very nice. And we get to, you know, share in the food and drinks uh, and, there we, we, it's a nice occasion and we get to share in and, and see the love of the Father and the Son and the celebration of it in one sense, but it's only for a little while. Uh, we'll have to leave at some stage and we'll be, we'll be shut out from the family. 
because we refused the, the real invitation. I, I can recommend um, that, that short book, The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God by Don Carson. He talks about there's the love within the Trinity. There's the love that God has as a creator over his people. There's the love of his um, saving stance towards the world. There's the love that he has towards his particular uh, elect as well. And so I'm happy to lend that book out if anyone wants. Now, Andrew, two more questions. Uh, the first one only because two different people asked it, so cumulatively gets four votes, and we all like analogies, don't we? Um, what's wrong with the cerebrus analogy uh, for the Trinity uh, with the three-headed dog? It depends how you understand it. <laughs> uh, it's it's okay insofar as you understand that there is one common life. Uh, the question, of course, is how do those three heads relate to each other? Uh, they don't seem particularly in a relationship of love. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, I think that another danger of it is that it, yeah, it might make, it, it, it runs into the same problem we were talking about before of conceiving of God as one person and three persons. So the, hmm. the one body is like the true, the true concrete expression of God. And there's these kind of three appendages which project from it, the heads. Hmm. All right, final question uh, for now. Oh, we'll see how we go. Um, how do we, I love this question. How do we become Trinitarian Christians? What are some practical ways we can display the doctrine of the Trinity in our lives? Here's a good way. Um, when you pray, ask God the Father to help you see the glory of his son and to glorify his son. Um, so you are then joining in the purposes of the, the express purposes of the father that will honour the, the, the son even as we honour the father. Um, and when you think about living uh, an obedient Christian life, Think about John 15, where Jesus talks about how this is to my Father's glory that you remain in me and bear much fruit. So when we do that, when we live as Christians, we are joining with Jesus and loving his Father. Yeah, so we stand with the Father in a sense, pointing at the, to kind of looking at the Son. We stand with the Son um, trying to bear fruit that honours and glorifies the Father. And it all happens through the Holy Spirit. Uh, so we cry out, Abba, Father, um, with him, by means of his presence in our lives and heart. Um, going, I, we could talk more about the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit, as um, Packer says, uh, in Keeping Step with the Spirit, which is a great book to read on the Holy Spirit, that this be, and he's reflecting here, uh, you know, things like, the, or especially John 16, with the, where the Holy Spirit is the floodlight uh, that the, the Father and the Son send to bring glory to the Father in the Son to, to take from what is Jesus's and make it known to us. So every time we glorify Jesus or, or share news about Jesus with other people, um, we are being Trinitarian Christians. So there's something in one sense, because I think the great mistake would be, I mean, out of this series, um, you know, evangelical, evangelicals, great talking about Jesus. We don't really talk about the Trinity. But then I think the unhelpful overcorrective would be, well, I guess um, I'm going to treat all three persons of the Trinity exactly the same. 
And then mm. as if Monday, Tuesday is Father Day, Wednesday, Thursday is Sunday, and then the rest get the spirit and then relate to all of them in the same way. Is it, is it right to say there's something Trinitarian about being Christ-centred? Yes, there is. Um, because the Father is full, has been uh, perfectly fully revealed insofar as it's possible to, for him to be revealed in space and time in his Son. He's, the Son is the greatest revelation of the Father, according to Hebrews 1, everywhere. Um, and the, the Father wants to do his great greatest work through the, the Son uh, so that the Son will be glorified and share in the Father's glory. Um, and the Holy Spirit comes not to, not to speak about himself or to glorify himself, but to glorify the Father and the Son too. So, yes, Christocentrism is... Uh, really important it doesn't mean we're christo monists that means doesn't mean we think we don't know the father as well uh we know the father and the son and when we get to to heaven according to revelation we see the him who sits on the throne the father and the son together and we we praise them uh, presumably by means of the holy spirit uh forever final question can someone be saved without believing in the trinity Perhaps they don't need to affirm it as, though, as long as they don't deny it. Yeah, yeah. So did you notice before I said, I said we had to be practically Trinitarian? So practic if you're, you're practically Trinitarian, if you honour the Father, honour the Son even as you honour the Father. Uh, so, you know, in the first centuries of the, ch of the church, there were a lot of people with slightly aberrant views on the doctrine of the Trinity, um, but they understood that, that uh, Jesus was to be treated as equal with the Father. So sometimes Jehovah's Witnesses come around to my house and that's what I challenge them with. I, I challenge them with um, John 5. Um, do you honour the, the um, uh, Son as uh, you honour the Father? That's what God wants. And then I take them to um, uh, Revelation 5 and say, look, here's all of creation uh, worshipping him who sits on the throne and the Lamb together. Will you join that great chorus? Uh, will you be practically Trinitarian? So, what do they say? Um, some say, okay, that is, they they think that they are being that they are willing to go along with that. So, I wonder sometimes if there are people who are caught in a cult, but uh, are, are Christians caught in a bad spot. As a um, as someone who's thought deeply about the Trinity, who's done a doctorate in the Trinity. Are you really happy when a Jehovah's Witness comes to your door? Is that like fish in a barrel sort of moment? Like, yes, I've been waiting for this. This is my evangelism that I've been trained for. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, yeah, it's a different experience, I guess. Um, but, you know, they uh, they are cult cultic people, so they, uh, they'll kind of try and flip from verse to verse. So, you know, it's always frustrating. But, yeah. But one, one interesting thing, of course, um, for Jehovah's Witnesses, they often think because they have an, a, a common but wrong understanding of the Trinity, they think every time they point to, you know, Jesus obeying the Father, they've disproved the Trinity. Whereas I, I say, no, that's, that's consistent with the order in the Trinity. That's, that's part of Trinitarian doctrine. Uh, this is just the expression of his um, sonship. Uh, nothing wrong with that at all. That doesn't disprove the Trinity. Andrew, um, 
I lied. This is my final question. <laughs> uh, I, can, I appreciate that for some of us, someone texted me before and they said, listening to this, I'm frothing like this is just so good. It's great. Um, I can imagine that for others of us, we're listening to this and it's some of it's just going straight over our heads and it's like, I don't know what to do with this. And I feel like I'm in an awkward spot because I'm being told that the Trinity is probably the most important reality of the world and my life and human existence. I'm at the end of this and I kind of get maybe about 2% of what's going on. Um, what encouragement do you have for those of us who might struggle when we come to think about the Trinity and it would be really easy to feel disheartened at something that we feel like we really need to nail? Oh, you know, they, they talk about how John's gospel is, you know, um, a, a pool that a child can um, splash in and a elephant can swim in kind of thing. Trinity's like that too. In fact, there's so much doctrine of the Trinity in John's gospel that it's a very apt uh, analogy. Uh, so I guess one, one thing to remember is that you don't have to understand you know, everything. None of us do. We, we will spend eternity understanding, kind of getting to know our infinite God better. In fact, that's one reason why eternity is going to not, not going to be boring because, uh, as C.S. Lewis writes in you know, Narnia, it's always higher up and further in. We keep going into, into God and learning more and more about him. Um, so we never kind of master the Trinity. We never, we never master God. Uh, but we can, I think all of us, if we're Christians to any extent, uh, know that Jesus is good and that uh, and can be encouraged to remember that uh, God the Father loves his son and has a, has a plan for his son as well as for us. And that uh, it's more about God the Father and Son and Holy Spirit than it is about us. And uh, we are privileged to share in this great story that they are telling about themselves uh, in our world, in the creation that they've built, in the stage that they've built to kind of have this play, that we, that we get to be extras or cast members um, in. Yeah. That's absolutely amazing. I, I love it. And, you know, when you use that illustration of the Trinity or John's gospel being water that's shallow enough for a toddler to wade in and an elephant to play in or the inverse or whatever it is, mm. uh, the thing that I love about it is, and maybe this is slightly sadomasochistic, but I like the drowning experience initially. <laughs> I think the drowning experience of thinking about the Trinity reminds me that this is a God who's bigger than me. Mm. Uh, and I think uh, we're just saying before this started, uh, that the Trinity, for me, I find is the ultimate cure to narcissism because it introduces us to a God who's so much bigger than us and yet loves us all the same. Yeah, yeah, very true. Uh, Heavenly Father, we praise you uh, for your kindness to us uh, in the gospel. We praise you, God, that you uh, are a God who is in many ways beyond our comprehension and yet at the same time you reveal yourself to us. You show us who you are in your greatness and your glory. And there are moments, God, where our breath is taken away. There are moments, God, that our mind just is blown and our brain hurts. And there are moments, God, where we think about the Trinity and it drives us to live uh, with that divine love as the motivating engine uh, of our lives. We pray, God, that we would be gripped by the deep things of God and we would love you dearly. Please, God, in your kindness, as we pray together in our breakout rooms, bind us together uh, with the very love that's within you that that love might be among us as your people. Send us out, God, as well by that love, uh, with a love turned outwards to seek and save the lost. Now we pray these things for Jesus' sake.
Amen. Amen.